0: quick review before we get on with our lesson for today. Last week, we discussed um, contentment and its definition. So who can share with me what is the definition of contentment that we're working with? You guys have your notes? Huh? Where are your notes? Take out your notes. Anybody remember? Yes, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. Excellent. Yes. Contentment is a disposition of the heart that freely and joyfully submits to God's will, whatever that will may be. Um, so we looked at we kind of broke that down last week. Right. It's a disposition of the heart, which means that uh, contentment is not tied to circumstances not tied to money it's not tied to people right contentment is dependent on something that does not change and that is God the gospel his word his promises those things that don't change and it's also uh, contentment freely and joyfully submits to God's will it's uh, something when, when we have a content heart it's a heart that believes that God is right in what he does but also that he is good and what he does, right? We can trust him, that we delight in what he does because we know it is what is best. And a contented heart also uh, believes that God is always being gracious and a contented heart doesn't just tolerate or put up with circumstances. A contented heart doesn't complain about circumstances because a contented heart realizes that God is being gracious to all who are in Christ and he manifests that grace differently in different people. And then we also looked at what it means uh, to submit to his will, whatever that will may be. And we looked at Joseph and how Joseph was able to um, submit even to his brothers selling him into slavery because he trusted that the Lord was in it. And so he could continue to be content. And then we see at the end of that story that he said, I'm in God's place. He believed that. Okay, so um, some of the things that we talked about last week also were that we cannot have contentment without. A fight. We must fight for contentment. It's not something that we can just sit back and let happen to us. We must uh, fight. But there, there's some things we had to remember about fighting that were important. You guys remember any of those instances or those examples of things that we need to remember about the fight for contentment? Yeah, Jeff. Joy is always a gift. God is always the giver, Right? Now, he has ordained that he give the gift of contentment and joy through certain what we call avenues, right? And our discipline or our fight is to put ourselves inside those avenues in which God blesses. But he's not obligated to do it uh, our way or in our timing. It's his way, and his timing. But we put ourselves in those avenues like studying the Word of God. Prayer, being in fellowship with the people here in the local congregation, right? And uh, the things that he prescribes in the word of God. We put ourselves in those avenues, and God, uh, in time, gives contentment and joy, right? So it's always a gift, and so we continue to wait on him as the giver. And uh, something else we we looked at is the fact that we're talking about contentment and the fight for it. We're not alone in the fight, are we? Uh, It's not us having to pull up. Ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're not relying on our own power. Um, we're not relying on our own ingenuity. We're relying on God, right? We looked at Philippians two, twelve, and thirteen, which tells us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it is God who works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Which means that God's work enables our work as we fight for joy. Yeah. I just want to grab the chapel. <laughs> as much as I love elevator music, uh, let's, hold on just a second. Like we're in an elevator and you guys are, it's see. here we go, all right. It's like, it was a cue, like that, that word. She's like, all right, and yes. Yeah, that's right, a soundtrack to our Sunday school classroom. Funny. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, let's talk about um, how we fight for contentment. Um, we've got a few weeks left after this week, but we're going to start talking about the things that we need to do um, in order to put ourselves in these avenues, right, through which God blesses and gives contentment to us. So um, I don't have a PowerPoint presentation, as you can see. Uh, I was I was in that office one day this week on Monday, and then we were out of town for Thanksgiving, so I didn't have time to put that together. So uh, I've got... I've got my notes. You've got your notes. Let me know if you don't get a blank, okay, uh, if I pass something up. Yeah. If, who, who doesn't have notes? We've got uh, notes back there. Philip has them if you don't have them already. Your brother is lacking. Okay. Good deal. Okay. So first things first. If I can find. There we go. Okay. Number one, how do we fight for contentment? We fight to see ourselves in our proper place. Fight to see yourself in your proper place. I think we've got we've to break down some ideas and some loyalties that we have to self before we can be content in Christ. We've got to break down those loyalties to self. I, something that I try to tell people often is we need to learn to stop trusting ourselves and we need to learn to stop loving ourselves. Uh, so much, and we've got to replace that with trusting God and loving God. Now, um, let's discuss what that includes, all right? If we're going to fight to see ourselves in our proper place, let's look at a few verses together, shall we? Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, we'll look at verse 1. When you've got that, go ahead and someone read that for us. Psalm 19, 1. Okay, so, what is creation declaring or proclaiming? God's glory. Is creation declaring your glory? No, God's glory, right? That's important because uh, we need to be put in our proper place. We need to stop loving self. and We need to see ourselves in the light of God, right? And so, All this creation exists, and as we look at the trees changing in the fall time and the beauty of them, we think, wow, I am amazing. No. I mean, have you ever thought that? Have you ever looked at creation and thought, yes, I am glorious? I mean, even, I think it's even hard for unbelievers to do that. You look at creation, and your your breath is taken away. As, As broken as this world is. There's this beauty around us. There's a song I've been listening to by Andrew Peterson where he, he's kind of pleading with unbelievers to, to look around them and see in, in spite of all the things that go wrong in this world, there's still so much to be thankful for. But who are you going to thank? That's what he's, don't you want to thank somebody? Don't, don't you want to look at the sun? Don't you want to look at the, at the clouds? Don't you want to look at the trees changing and thank someone? Who are you going to thank? Right? Whenever we see and creation, um, the beauty of it, it's so hard to think of ourselves as great, right? It's so hard to think of ourselves as, as worthy when we look at the beauty that God has created, right? They're proclaiming his glory. That's why they're not meant to proclaim your glory. We can't see ourselves reflected in that. They're meant to proclaim him. And it goes throughout the earth, The proclamation of his glory through creation, the text tells us later. Okay, what about Isaiah 6, 1 through 3? Let's turn over there. We know this text. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. Someone read that for us, please. Go ahead, Ken. I thought you raised your hand. Yeah, I said, oh, my bad. Go ahead, Ken. Angels are singing of God's holiness, not our holiness, right? You never see angels in the scripture singing praises to man, do you? Right? They're singing of God's holiness. Who is the object of worship in this text? It is God and this glorious picture that Isaiah sees. Isaiah is there, right? He's there. The angels aren't praising him, right? I mean, Isaiah is a mess in this text, right? I mean, uh, he's not worthy of worship. He's, he's broken. He's undone, the text tells us. Right? He, he cries out of his uh, unclean condition, sinfully, morally. I'm a, peop- I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, right? He declares his own neediness and his wretchedness. He's not the one that's worthy here. He's not the one the angels are singing to. It's God. Angels are singing of God's holiness. Let's look at another text here. This is just helping us understand. We need to have a perspective of ourselves that's proper. We need to put ourselves in our place. And we are not God. Is that a revelation to anybody in here? I don't think so. But we need to be reminded of it every day nonetheless, don't we? I'm not God. And that's a good thing. All right, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Someone read that for us, please. Great text. Okay. Hmm. That is awesome. When, when you find that you are full of self, When you find that you are thinking of yourself as more important than everybody else, when you find that uh, you are discontent because people aren't giving you the respect that you think that you deserve, remind yourself of this text. In the end, who's going to be bowing? Who is going to be bowing in the end? Everyone. Who is going to be proclaiming, confessing that he is Lord? Everyone. And at the name of Jesus, it says, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It, he is the object of that worship and that submission and that honor. All will bow. All will confess. And listen, in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. Not you. Not me. Him, right? And bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Yes, Jesus is a much, much higher name than Brent. Praise the Lord for that. And God has given him that name, not me. And so every day we struggle with pride. And Anybody in here that says, I don't struggle with pride, you're wrong. (laughs) We all struggle with pride every day. We have sinful hearts, and really the essence of all sin is selfishness and pride. We want what we want, and so therefore we, we sin to get it, right? Are we sin? if we don't get what we want. It's all about self, right? But we read here that in the end, we're not going to be the ones that are being bowed down to. We are the ones that be, will be bowing. We are the ones that will be confessing that he is Lord. You know, it's interesting. When we think about all of these texts, um, they should deflect our attention away from self to Christ to God. Uh, in fact, um, there's something about creation that I, I forgot to say and, and the way that it deflects our attention away from self. I, I heard John Piper in a, or I read it in a sermon of his one time. He talked about how one of the best ways we can fight temptation is to get outside because sin is selfish at its core, right? And creation helps us get our attention away from self. It pulls us from within to without to his glory. And so that's just a practical thing that I I forgot to tell you about. Whenever you're battling temptation, because temptation is, um, at its core, selfish and prideful, get outside and be confronted with all that is beautiful that God has created to take yourself from within to without to him. But we're beginning to see, we're beginning to help ourselves see who we really are and put ourselves in our place so that we have the perspective that David has in Psalm 8. Let's turn there. We want to have this perspective, everybody. Pray that God would bring you to this place and bring you to this place often. Psalm eight, three through four. Someone read that for us. Go ahead, Russ. You ever feel like that? Sometimes you feel like that, don't you? Um, Not all the time. We need to be praying that God would bring us to this place more often. But uh, we see here that David has a big picture of God, a small picture of man. We have it reversed often, don't we? We need to be the ones who are striving to see God as big and man as small. So often we have it reversed that we have big thoughts of man and little thoughts of God. J.I. Packer said that in the beginning part of his book, Knowing God. We have big thoughts of man, small thoughts of God. Why is that? Why is that? Well, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think it is because we, we spend more time studying man, the things of man, than we do God. Because if we studied God more, we would see more his immensity and his infinity and his grace and his love, and God would enlarge our hearts for him. and We'd see, have a bigger picture of this God who deserves our worship. Now, when have you experienced what David is talking about here, where you look um, at the heavens or the work of God's fingers, and you're put in a place where you think, why is God even mindful of me? What are those times in your life where you have felt like that? You thought, wow, why, is, why does he care for me? Why is he even mindful of me? Give us some examples. What have you felt like that? When, when, when has your heart expressed those kinds of words? What scenarios do you think? Great, Joe. We saw Niagara Falls. I've never been there. Breathtaking? Yeah. It's loud, isn't it? Is it loud? Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, the the rushing waters you're describing. Uh, And... Revelation talks about Jesus Christ, His voice like the sound of many rushing waters—not just not just one waterfall, you many of these waterfalls. His voice is that strong. I tried to paint a picture for my boys when we went to the ocean. We heard the waves like like that—many rushing waters. Just think, this is just you know we're here in this one section of the ocean, but that's the sound of the voice of Christ in the end. What else has made you think big thoughts of God and little thoughts of man? It's incredible. Uh, he knows the hairs I have on my head t- too, <laughs> but it's not quite as impressive as some of you. Um, so you know, you're absolutely right, though. It's the, uh, we, we went on a uh, mission trip to Mexico. It's a little fishing village out, um, you know, just uh, I think is in the Meseta region. And I had never seen so many stars in my life. It was absolutely um, awesome. Just to stand and look, and and literally we stood there and we we. Looked into the sky, and no one was talking. I thought, for, you know, for some of us, that's a, <laughs> to have us stop talking was, was something that's extremely impressive, that God could do that with his creation. But you're, you're right, that is truly amazing. It makes you feel small, right? All of a sudden, you, you cannot boast of yourself. Right? We need to put ourselves in positions like that where we can't boast in self because we're surrounded by his glory. Any other examples? Yes, Jane. Oh, yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. And to hear doctors say, um, I heard someone say recently, that uh, their doctor told them, how many things have to go right for a baby to be born, right? All of the different, you know, the, the details and the specifics of what has to go right for a baby to actually be born. And then that happens every day, so many times. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. They were practicing. Slackers. They're not slackers. They were practicing. (laughs) Good. Come on in. What else? I had some other hands back there. Yes, Amy. Yeah? Oh, right. When you look down to the ground, you see the homes all of a sudden. It is a different uh, it is a different feeling, isn't it? Because, you, you know, we're on the street level here, and we're, we look at a few buildings we can see around our, ourselves that, okay, there's a person who lives there and there and there, and that's all we can see. But when you see the, the neighborhoods and the communities and the cities from the sky, that, I, I like that, absolutely. There's a, a book I'm reading right now where he talks about, uh, you know, if we could all go to the top of the Empire State Building and look at the, you know, the 86,000 people that are, uh, are below us or whatever number he quoted, you know, the people in New York just kind of scurrying from place to place. I'm just one of them, right? I'm just just one of these people that God has created out of the 7 billion people that are here on earth right now. Good. What else? We're small. God's big. Yeah. That kind of puts things into perspective when you think about the order of the universe, right? How he, he, uh, he hung those stars in place and he named them and how everything seems, to, uh, uh, it does, it works in this, this order. And you know, people say it's chaotic, but can you imagine what it would be like if God removed his hand for even one second? We wouldn't exist. But, yeah, and then we, we fall and we fall and fall again. It's humbling yeah, compared to the order of the universe that he's put in place. That's good. What else? Yeah, yeah. It does to know, and to know that there's so much, so many more, uh, so many more, more bigger. I was, I keep wanting to say more bigger, uh, so many. Bigger things out there that seem like they're 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 more important than God. You should be using your time and your energy and your focus for those things right now. But this this little prayer that I'm I'm praying for the grace and the need of the moment, and you're you're answering it. That that is I agree. That's that's humbling, and you see it. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine this week. We were down in Houston, and he was telling me about one of those moments, just an answered prayer in in the moment. He had a need, and the Lord provided almost immediately. And you think, well. All the people and all of the tragedies and all of the the hardships that p- people are praying for, and you gave me what I need in the in the moment like that. Yeah, that makes you feel small. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, let's keep going here. This, I wanted to see uh, from you because we've all experienced that, and thank you for sharing with me. Okay. So we must strive to see God as big and man as small. If we're going to fight for contentment then we've got to put ourselves in the proper place, and this is what is necessary for us to put ourselves there. we need to strive to think that God is huge, he's big, he's immense, he's infinite, and I am not great. I'm not the center of the universe. Right? Piper talks about how we need uh, a Copernican revolution in our lives. Right? Where uh, all of a sudden, oh, like you know, the world isn't the center of the universe, that, that whole discovery of his. We are not the center of the universe. It is God who is the center of the universe in that sense. He's the one that gets all the glory. He's supreme, not us. So, how do we do this? Some things that we need to remember if we're going to see God as big and us as small. Um, there, the little I. Um, God loves mankind because he is great. Not because we are great. It kind of flies in the face of the self-esteem gospel, doesn't it? Right? God loves me, therefore I must be great, right? Not true. I'm not great. You and I, we are wretched. We are sinners. We are rebellious. And but God loves mankind. I, I'm thinking about this common grace love right now. Okay, I'm not thinking about the b- believers love. We'll get to that in just a second. But I'm thinking of common grace. God loves everybody with a common grace kind of love, and He does so. Because he is great, not because mankind is great. Look with me at uh, a couple of verses here. Let's look at Romans 3, 10 through 12. I just want to grab that real quick. Read it for us. John, you there, man? Go for it. Three, ten through twelve. As it is written, none is righteous, no not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's sobering, isn't it? Right. None righteous. None good. No one does good. No one seeks for God. Together they've become worthless. I mean, the word of God putting us in our place. Yet, you read texts like Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Turn there. Matthew five forty-three through 45. Someone read that for us, please. This is a great text. Go ahead, Chris. Okay, so why is it that we are called sons of God if we love our enemies, according to this verse, why is that? Why would we be called sons of God if we love our enemies? Say what? That's God-like. God-like to love your enemies, because He. Um, this is a world uh, of people. I mean, obviously, some of us have come to Christ by His grace, right? But we've got this, this world full of these unbelievers, these rebels, and yet He gives them the grace of rain, he gives them the things that they need, they have families, right, they have successful businesses. And he's being merciful. He's being gracious to them. And so as we love our enemies, we're like God who loves his enemies, right? Why does he do that? Because he's great. Because he's good. Because he is glorious. Not because the the enemies and the rebellious are. Because he is. Because it, it doesn't, whenever you look around and see people who are, uh, who are wicked, and God is being gracious to them, giving them things that they need, giving them good things. Think, okay, it doesn't mean that that person is good. It doesn't mean that that person is worthy. It means that God is worthy, God is good, right? What does it say about God? Okay, let's turn to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. 2, 4 through 7. <clears throat> I love this text. Just uh, You're going to want me to keep reading. After, but uh, I, I'm just going to focus in on these few verses here. Um, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, here's something we need to remember. Y- y- did you see the in Christ and the with hims that were in this text? Right? What does that say? What does that mean? We're united with Christ. He has made us united. He has united us with Christ. Have we united ourselves with Christ? No. He has united us with him. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? We can't do it. Absolutely. We we were not able to unite ourselves with Christ. God had to do it right? And, uh, certainly we couldn't do it when you read the, the first few verses of chapter 2, and it says we we're dead in our trespasses, right? We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of that, when you put that into perspective, of course we couldn't unite ourselves with Christ. But it says something else about it says something else about us too. What, what does it say in terms of God's perspective of us now that we are in Christ? He loves us. And what, because he loves us and because we're united with Christ, what does the text tell us he's going to be doing for us? Look at verse 7. Showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're united with Christ, and because we're united with Christ, I mean, he, we have a future. We have a future that's full of him showing us immeasurable grace. Isn't that great? And so it's not because we are great that he is doing this. It's because he is great. Look, look with me here. God loves believers because he united us with Christ. He united us. We did not unite ourselves. We were not worthy enough to be united with Christ. There was nothing we did to unite ourselves with Christ. But he loves us, and he gives us this special grace, this this immeasurable grace. That's what our future is full of because of the work that God has done in us through Christ and with us, uniting us to himself. Okay. Now, you'll see, I think if you've got your notes there, you just have 48, 9 through 11 on the next. Sorry about that. This is like 11 o'clock last night. Um, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. What I'm trying to help you understand here by by taking you through all of these steps is that um, God does these things not because he's obligated to, because we've earned it somehow, because we're glorious, we're beautiful, or we're worthy, but because he's great, because he is working, because he is awesome. Isaiah forty-eight nine through eleven. Someone to read this for us. This is a great text too. Go ahead, Bradley. So, that's that's pretty God-centered, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not going to give my glory to another. Let's remember that, church, the next time that we are trying to get glory for ourselves. And we, and we don't cl- call it glory, do we? <laughs> who, who calls it glory when you're thinking through those thoughts in your head, like, yes, I'm doing this for my own glory. I mean, you, you don't think that way. You think, you know, I want respect. That's what we think. We think along those terms. I want people to, uh, you know, I want people to see that I deserve something. Those are kind of the terminologies that we use in our minds. We don't think in terms of glory, but that's exactly what we we want. We want applause. We want people to notice us. Those are the things that we're thinking through. We don't think glory, but that's exactly what we mean. That's what I mean, Just, just they're kind of synonymous, aren't they? But God says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. What does that mean then? It means this. God loves us, as we've seen, right? He loves mankind. He loves us with a special grace, a special love. uh, If we're in Christ and He's going to show us the immeasurable riches of His grace forever, He loves us, but He doesn't exist for us. Okay? That's the Copernican revolution that we're talking about here, right? We are not the center of our universe. God needs to be the center of our universe, right? He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him, right? We've got to switch it. Every time that we are trying to get glory, praise, applause, respect, stuff, whatever we think we deserve, then we're up here. We've got to shift it. God will not give his glory to another. right? We've got to think these thoughts. He is the one that I exist for. He does not exist for me. He loves me, yes, but he doesn't exist for me. Now, we've got to remember something. Uh, please know that although you're thinking, oh, man, this is depressing. I, I I have no worth. I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I mean, uh, he's he's telling me here that you know uh, the angels and the creation—they're all declaring God's glory. There's, then then what about what about me? What what is good for me in all of this? What do you think? What's what's good for us in all of this? We're not good, we're not glorious, we're not worthy. We shouldn't live for self. What's good in that for you? Right. It sets us up for the gospel, right? You know, for for those of you who are believers in this room, it sets us up perfectly to preach the gospel to ourselves because we've got to remember um, that we are wretched and we are um, a rebellious people so that we can remember, oh, he did impute Christ's righteousness to me. That means he sees me as if I lived a perfect life. That means even though I'm a wretch, I'm treated as if I'm not. I'm treated as if I am perfect, although I am not, because Christ took my place. He exchanged himself, right? He put himself in my place so that I could be treated as if I lived his perfect life. He's treated as if he lived my sinful life. I'm treated as if I lived his perfect life. And that great exchange, I mean, this this kind of humility needs to take place if we're going to experience the grace of the gospel, okay? Okay? You cannot experience the grace of preaching the gospel to yourself if you don't first remember, I didn't deserve any of this. Right? What what does Jesus say with the very first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? What does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Humble? Most definitely humble. You're talking about spiritual righteousness, right? Nothing. Nothing. You have to realize that. And, and so blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones that are happy. Not, not because uh, there's, there's no hope for them, but what? What does it say? I forgot the second half of that verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit for what? How me remember? You guys remember? I hear a lot of mumbling. Let's just turn there. I haven't memorized all of those. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's why they're blessed. That's why they're happy. right? We, we, if you guys so, went through the Sermon on the Mount with me when I was preaching through it, blessed can be synonymous with happy, divinely happy. right? When you come to the realization that all of these texts that we're looking at lead us to, that we're not worthy of. We don't have anything in terms of spiritual righteousness to offer God so that he will accept us. But that means that we're ready to go when it comes to receiving the righteousness of Christ, when it comes to receiving the gospel, right, and the truth that sets us free. And so if you are set free by that truth, then each day as you remember that, then there is a a joy, a contentment, because I don't have to prove myself, right? Right? If you believe that, if you believe that you aren't worthy yet you've been loved with that perfect love and you're you don't have a righteousness that is your own but one that is from Christ and God sees you as if, as if you lived a perfect life, then that's free. In terms of contentment, you can live your life knowing I don't have to I don't have to meet this standard. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to work myself into a tizzy so that my life uh earns God's favor or shows that I am worthy enough to receive his grace. No. You know that it was given as a gift. And so you can be free from that work. You can be free from that burden. and You can rest in the gospel. But you have to come to that realization that you exist for God. And God does not exist for you. And if you exist for God, and you've been rebellious. Then the only hope you have is Jesus. And if Jesus is your only hope, then you're loved by God perfectly. See how freeing that is? Um, Tim Keller put it this way. He, he talked about a courtroom. and We we constantly put ourselves into this spiritual courtroom each day. We think that we have to meet a certain standard in order to be happy. right? We have to do certain things, be certain things in order to be happy. And if we don't meet the standard, then we can't be happy. Right? So we have to prove ourselves. Uh, we have to prove ourselves worthy enough in our own perspective to meet this standard. So each day, we we step inside the courtroom and we try our case. Here's why I meet the standard. Here's the evidence, right? Because I am this. Because I do this. Because I do that. So here's all the evidence for why I meet the standard. And some days we feel like we meet that standard, and we can be happy, content, right? Or for a short amount of time. Other days we walk in and we try our case and we say, this for this reason and for this reason, because I am this or I am that, then I can, no, no, I don't measure up today. And so you're depressed and you're bitter, discontent. Right? But if Christ stepped in the courtroom for you and said, you already approved. I'm trying the case for you and I'm not using the evidence from your life, I'm using my life, my sacrifice, my resurrection and that Proves you're accepted by God. How, how beautiful is that? You can walk out of the courtroom. You don't have to go, you don't have to put yourself back on trial because Christ already bought you permanently with his own blood. And God has approved you in Christ permanently. That leads to contentment. But we can't get there unless we see ourselves as small, unworthy, and God is the one who is worthy, and in Christ, the uh, the culmination of that worthiness. Okay, let's keep going here. E, on your notes, we're almost out of time here. Is our goal contentment? Is, is that the goal for your life today, contentment? What do you think? Is that your goal? Should that be our goal? I know it's hot in here, I'm sorry. kind of a tricky question because we have commandments to be content. We have commandments to uh, be joyful and rejoice, don't we? But the difference is our contentment should not be contentment alone. Our, Our goal should not be contentment alone. It must be contentment in the Lord, right? It must be contentment in the Lord. If it's contentment alone, then really we're still at the center of our universe, aren't we? If it's just contentment, then we're still at the center of our universe. But if it's contentment in God, in Christ, then that is when we can truly be content. Now, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Psalm 37, delight yourselves in the Lord. That's our goal. Content in Christ, in the Lord. We can't have contentment apart from him, but we try so often, don't we? to find contentment elsewhere, and that's the problem but we've got to keep going back, turning away from the broken cisterns to come back to the living waters. That should be our every day. I'm not going to drink from these, this putrid water that's been sitting in this broken cistern. It's leaking out. It doesn't even hold any water. I'm going to return to the living water. From Jeremiah 2. And if our goal is contentment in the Lord, praise God, We have hope. If that is our goal, then we have hope. Check this out. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.15. If you haven't memorized this text, go ahead and memorize it because it's helpful on a daily basis for us as we seek to turn from self and sin. Someone read 2 Corinthians 5.15 for us. put that in your own words. What, what's Paul saying? Why did Christ die? What's one of the reasons why Christ died according to this text? That's right. He died so that we wouldn't live for ourselves, but we would live for him. right? So here, here's the conclusion. The cross has given us a new center to our universe, right? The cross saved us from self. You think, um, like we talked about, I think it was last week, we talked about how Romans chapter 1, God is handing people over to their desires. Why is that punishment? Because we were made to glorify God. We were not made to indulge in the things of this world. We were made to delight in God. And so that's why it's punishment. We're doing, when God hands us over to our desires, the desires of our sinful heart, it's punishment because That only leads to misery. It leads leads to us being outside of the purpose for our existence. That's why it's punishment. But the cross, the cross has us die to self. Breaks the chains we have to self so that we will live for Christ. So we will live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. So the cross has given us a new center to our universe. It's taken us out of the middle and put God in. Now we have to fight for that, though, daily, don't we? Yes, we. The shackles to self have been broken, but daily we must fight to put God back in the center, back in the center of our universe. Okay, and so we've got to remember these things that we've been preaching to ourselves this morning. Look, look with me at Philippians three, four through eleven. If we have this new center to our universe, okay, how do we, how do we know we can fight to? To enjoy God as the center of our universe. Philippians 3, 4-11. through 11. Listen to Paul. Listen to the contentment in Paul. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Quite a list of credentials if you're a Jew, right? Quite a list of credentials. It's It's a great resume if you're a Jew. A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Why, Paul? Why do you count everything as loss? Because of the surpassing worth, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And he goes on, but what I want to concentrate on here is the fact that he says, I count all of that, that great resume, all of its loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Means not only have the shackles to self been broken, so that we have a new center to our universe, but the cross has given us the capacity for contentment by giving us something better than the things we think will satisfy us. We have something better. Tell yourself that daily. Jesus is better. Christ is better. The promises, the word of God—it's all better than the things that this world has to offer. That the things that our sin, sinful heart wants. He is of surpassing worth. Do you believe that? You've got to preach that to yourself. Lord, and, and pray this, plead with God. Help me to believe that Jesus is of surpassing worth. To know him, not to just know him, know him, right? But to embrace him, know him. That includes your mind and your will and your heart that, that Dan was talking about. It's that, it's that kind of attachment that we're referring to. The intimate knowledge. Is of surpassing worth. And so it's not like, you know, think about this. Whenever you're 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 a parent and you're trying to convince your kids to go and do something, because, oh no, it's really fun, I promise. You ever been in one of those situations? Right? It's like, come on, let's go to the museum. There's this exhibit on the Civil War. It's really, really fun, I promise. And they're like, What? Come on. Is there a slide? You know? And so you're trying to convince them and, and their minds, you know, it's just, okay. It's not not better. But we have a promise from God that Jesus is better. He knows. He knows it's better because God knows all, and he planned all, and he built us that way. He built us to be satisfied only in him, right? He is of surpassing worth. We don't have to try and convince people, you know, oh, come on, here's this, you know, uh, believe me, believe me. And here's why. See how much fun I'm having? The word of God is sufficient. Yes, we need to enjoy God in front of people, but we already know, we don't have to try in vain to convince people that it, he's better. He is better. And so we pray that God would save them. We use the word of God. We love them and we show them how he is better in our enjoyment of him. But we have a capacity for contentment now because we can tell ourselves it's, it is better. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to convince myself here of a lie, God has told me it is better. He is better. Now, here's the thing. I know I'm over time, but let me say one last thing, and that is we've got to c- cultivate an appetite for Christ. We've Yes, we've, we've been given the capacity for contentment, but so often we return to the things of this world. We indulge in the things um, our flesh or our sinful heart wants, and our, our appetites are for the world for a season, right? Our taste buds are for the world for a season, right? Our senses are dulled, right? Our, our affections for Christ are, aren't stimulated. They're dull and they're callous. We've got to work at cultivating this contentment. We've got to cultivate this kind of appetite or these taste buds for Christ. Listen to this quote from John Piper. Spiritual perceiving is the creation of a new taste in the soul. Before our conversion, the honey of Christ tasted sour or bland and thus undesirable to our souls. Then, by grace, we were granted a new capacity for sweetness, right? We're given the taste buds, a new capacity for sweetness. And we tasted the honey of Christ for what it really is, sweet and desirable. But here's what happens to us. We've got that capacity. We've got that new taste, right? New taste buds. For Christ. But here's what happened to me yesterday coming back from Houston for th- for Thanksgiving. Um, we stopped at Bucky's. Who knows Bucky's? If you're driving on I forty five, it's a huge thing. Man, you see the sign from like eighty miles away. And um, we went in there and I just wanted, I wanted a snack. I was kinda hungry and, and uh I saw this guy putting some some replacements up on this shelf of this this uh, a banana pudding that he had made there this this morning. I was like, Man, I want some banana pudding? So I grabbed grab me some banana pudding and got some sweet tea off the shelf. And I started eating the banana pudding in the car. I wasn't driving. Uh, <laughs> eating the banana pudding is real sweet, real rich banana pudding, right? I had the sweet tea, too. That was a new brand. I hadn't tried before. I was like, I'll give it, I'll give it a try. And so after I'd been eating the, the pudding, I put that down, and I got the sweet tea, and I started to swig it. And I thought, that's not sweet tea. <laughs> Why does it say sweet tea? That's definitely unsweet tea. That's not sweet tea. What did it happen? What did it happen? My taste buds had uh, become acclimated to the banana pudding, right? And Had I been uh, eating maybe barbecue, then I would think that that sweet tea was sweet. But I had been uh, putting so much sugar into my mouth through the pudding that my taste buds were acclimated to the pudding, right? And so this, the, the tea did not taste as sweet as I wanted it to taste, and I was disappointed. You see, Do we see the connection here? If we, if we continue to spend all of our time, all of our energy, all of our affection on the things of this world, then our taste buds are going to be dulled. We're not going to, we're not going to taste Christ for how sweet he truly is if that's our appetite, if that's, if that's where our, our diet is. Make sense? That's, if we're just indulging the things of this world, we go to Christ and we think, it's, it's not what they're telling me it is. It's not what they're telling me it is. The more and more we spend time with Christ, the more and more we spend in his word, and we study him, and we spend time around people who know him, and we pray, and we talk to him, right? And we ask him, and we praise him And in prayer. Then our taste buds get acclimated to Christ again, and we begin to see it is better than all that stuff. We remember. So we've got to cultivate these taste buds. We have that capacity now, but so often we train ourselves to, have a diet of the junk, we should be feasting on Christ. So we'll talk about how we feast on Christ more next time, okay? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for what you've given us in Jesus. Thank you that he is of surpassing worth, and I pray that we would believe that in our hearts. Please make us believe that in our hearts today, Father God, when we're tempted to to just fill our day with things that are empty, or even good things don't need to be ultimate. They need to be means to the end of glorifying you. Help us to remember that they should always be means and never ends, God. May we rest in what we have in Christ and be content, Father, for your glory. And in your name, Jesus.